This is Straight Ahead with the 606 Club of London and David Lewis. Get on the right track, baby. Get on the right track, baby. Get on the right track, baby. Come on home and treat me round again. Get on the right track, baby. Get on the right track, baby. Get on the right track, baby. This time, girl, come right on home. Treat me wrong again. Don't you know that look, you baby? And I've crammed those night and day. But I'll tell you just one more time. Come back even if you don't stay. Get on the right track, baby. Get on the right track, baby. Get on the right track, baby. You better look out, girl. Come right on home. Treat me wrong again. What I want. Don't you know that I love you, baby? But yet you broke my heart in two. Please, please come back home. I wanna spend my life with you. Get on the right track. That's what I want. Get on the right track. That's what I said. Get on the right track. You better look out, girl. Come on home. Treat me wrong one more time. This week straight ahead with me, David Lewis, and of course the 606 Club of Chelsea. We have got a very, very special two hours ahead of us. It's not often you get down, uh, get a chance to sit down with music royalty and a legend, but we did this week. Jim Mullen and I sat down finally and managed to get the interview that I've wanted for so long, and it's fascinating, full of great stories. So I hope you can stay with me over the next couple of hours and hear what Jim has to say. We started off the show this week with uh, one of the vocalists that Jim certainly thinks is the very finest that the UK has produced, Georgie Fame from 1964 there and Get On The Right Track Baby, along with his Blue Flames. And through the course of the next two hours, we're going to be playing music referencing Jim's illustrious career and different projects, of course. We're going to be playing music of him along with Claire Martin, also with Citrus Sun, and something from Morrissey Mullen. Speaking of which, a little earlier this year, Jim released an album called Legacy with a nod to that wonderful jazz funk set up from the early 1980s. And the track we're going to listen to next is Slinky.
little guitar work there with Jim Mullen. That was Slinky, taken from Jim's Legacy album that was released just a little early this year. And it was Dave Lewis that was taking on the role of tenor for the late Dick Morrissey. So whilst uh, we're not playing music from Jim Mullen on this show this week, we're going to be playing some of the very finest, finest jazz guitarists I could think of to put in the show. Obviously, marking the point that we've got Jim with us. And carrying on now, somebody that I know that uh, Jim has an awful lot of respect for is Nigel Price, an extremely hardworking musician. And uh, in fact, we mentioned in the interview, there's one night when I was down at the six sometime last year and Nigel came down on a very rare night off just to watch Jim play but going back to Nigel now and an album released a couple of years ago live at the Crypt it's a wonderful wonderful album and uh, this features Vasilis Sinopolis on tenor and it's their take of the Wes Montgomery standard four on six <laughs> Thank you. 
Price organ trail, which comprised of Matt Home on the drums, Ross Stanley on the Hammond B3, and there featured the tenor of Vasilis Sinopolis, and it was their take on Wes Montgomery's Four on Six. So, from one live recording to another, it's time for Buddy's Bit this week. Although the show's all about Jim Mullen, we're still going to squeeze in some Buddy. And this is a live recording from Ronnie's a few years ago, back in the 80s, and it is their version Winding Way.
from the band's final live recording, Buddy Rich There and Winding Way. So the time has come that we're going to begin talking to Jim Mullen. And obviously we're playing a lot of Jim's music. I'm going to start off the interview with a track from his Straight Ahead album of a couple of years ago called Volunteers. And the track we're going to listen to is Speed of Sound. 606 gift vouchers, a unique present for those who love the good things in life.
So back to our series of interviews, keeping musicians live. And this week, I'm so proud to say that on the 606 Club Straight Ahead show, we've got well, jazz giant guitarist Jim Mullen. Jim, a very good morning to you. Hi, David. I've been waiting for a long time to get you on. So thanks for uh, agreeing to come on the show with us. It's obviously been a, a very odd year for us all, but particularly for you guys. Uh, when did you first know or hear that the, the diary was emptying and clubs were shutting? How did that come to you? Uh, well, I mean, uh, I, I actually did my last gig the day before lockdown. I did a gig at the 606 on March the 16th. Mm-hmm. And it was the next day they announced lockdown. And then we realised this was going to be a long-term thing. And uh, I don't know if we'll get another gig this year. So it's kind of a, it's a belt-tightening exercise. Absolutely. <laughs> and I'm assuming, knowing as busy and as popular as you are on the circuit, that uh, your diary was pretty full for the year, was it? It was, pretty, it was, yeah, reasonably full, actually. Yeah, and of course, there were summer festivals and things, mm. and it's all gone, you know. So, you know, you just have to take it on the chin because uh, the main thing is to just stay healthy, you know. Absolutely. So, as we've got you with us for the, a little while, why don't we go back to the beginning? As everyone can hear clearly, not a London-born gentleman, Glasgow-born, I believe, weren't you? That's that's right. A good place to come from. <laughs> And was music in your household? Were your parents keen on listening or were they musicians? No, no not really, actually. In fact, they did everything to discourage me. <laughs> As a good my parent dad, should do. <laughs> my dad says, oh, you'll never make any money as a musician. <laughs> we wasn't wrong many, there. <laughs> many of the time I thought he was absolutely right. But, uh, but they did come to my gigs, you know, whenever I played in Glasgow with mm-hmm. the Marcy Mullen Band. And uh, but I didn't look at them when we were playing because I would just see these really puzzled expressions. <laughs> you know? But then when the audience applauded and stuff, they'd say, oh, they say, oh people like this. So then they would kind of warm to it. But my, you know, they didn't know what was going on at all. And it was mother, through, sorry, it was through a close friend of yours, wasn't it? You were first introduced to jazz and jazz guitar. That's right, yeah. I had a, I had a guitar-playing friend who was about 10 years older than me who lived sort of next door, really, and uh, he was the first guy I knew who had an arch-top guitar. That's the sort of big, fat jazz guitar. Mm-hmm. And uh, I used to go up and knock at his door and ask if I could look at his guitar. I didn't have the nerve to say, could I touch it or play it or anything? <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, he sort of took pity on me, and uh, we started kind of hanging out together, and he showed me a lot of things on the guitar. And it just kind of, he played me my first jazz records, which 
I didn't know anything about it at all. I was completely perplexed. But something kind of a seed was sown and that I kind of uh, started to mean something to me, you know. And from that point on, I've been trying to figure out what the hell <laughs> way around the, the guitar. <laughs> but didn't you not start out as a bass on the good old tea chest because it was just a bit simpler? Well, well, that's when I was a kid. I mean, you know, we were making our own instruments and yeah. stuff. And, uh, I used to have a tea chest bass with a broom handle and, mm-hmm. and a piece of string, you know, hammered down uh, to the far corner and the. It was one of those really hairy bits of string. It used to do terrible <laughs> to my fingers, but uh, this was my start. <laughs> so how did your sort of musical education begin then? I know you had this friend who had the arch top and, you know, you were sort of noodling around. Was there any formal education? Did your folks get no, your lessons? No, or? no, I'm probably the last generation of kind of self-taught players because there was no real education available. The only thing in Glasgow where I lived was the, the, the Athenaeum, the Royal College of Scottish College of Music. And you had to be fairly gifted to even be considered for that. They had auditions. And of course, being a kid and just self-taught, I mean, I didn't have enough knowledge to, to even get an audition. But mm. I, I wasn't thinking along those lines. I wasn't thinking about being a professional musician. For me, music was just a really fun thing to do that we could do together. I like the kind of democratic element also of uh, everyone contributing something uh, in a group. Mm. And uh, it kind of just grew from there, really, just playing with local kids. So you started playing gigs while still living in Glasgow, did you? Yeah. I, I, was, I worked as a journalist for many years. Yes, so I read for a local Aldi. newspaper, right? That's right, a couple of newspapers in Glasgow. One was a, an evening paper, mm-hmm. which meant I had uh, you work more or less office hours and you have uh, nights off, which was great. But before that, I worked on a daily paper, which means you work nights. So that was kind of restricting in terms of... Uh, of Getting out uh, for gigs and... Yeah. yeah so yeah. when I moved from the daily paper to the evening paper, then I had seven nights a week. And then I started gigging much more and, uh, and then thinking about maybe this is the way I want to go. And uh, that's what happened, in fact. You know, uh, Amy Stewart, who's a good friend of mine... Of the and I, band. That's right. But before that, he was in a Glasgow band called The Dream Police. Mm-hmm. And we more or less at the same time left Glasgow to go south because that was the deal then. You had to come to London to get any chance of making a career. That was going to be my next sort of progressional sure. question. What was it that, that we, it was obviously a choice to come south and it was music that was the driver, I take it, was it? Oh, absolutely. That was, that was the point of it because uh, the music scene in Scotland to this day is still very small. So the idea of having a kind of full-time career in music in Scotland would mean you'd have to go into something like a TV band or something or a theatre band or something in order to work full-time. And, uh, of course, that's not what we wanted to be musicians for. We wanted to do other things, you know, personal things. And uh, you had to move south. You know, so we're kind of economic refugees. And uh, the trip south was uh, the way that you had to do it. You know? And did you? Did you come down to South alone? I did, yeah. Yeah. That was a brave move, wasn't it? Cause you, what, what age were you him taking you? Were you a young man? I was, I think I was 20. Yeah, 20. so it's a young man to be coming down. Yeah. I actually came down to a gig, um, which I was quite happy about because uh, my very first London gig was with a guy called Pete Brown. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether you remember Pete. Pete was the guy who I, wrote lyrics for the Cream. Yes. I know the name, certainly, yeah. Sunshine of Your Love, one of the most recorded songs of all time. Pete wrote the lyrics. Anyway, 
he had a band and he asked me to join his band and the, that was my kind of foot in the door, if you like, you know. So it's literally off the train, straight onto the stage? Well, almost. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I came down and I was actually staying in his, uh, his flat. He lived in Montague Square. And uh, in fact, it's only a few hundred yards from where I'm living now in the West End. So mm-hmm. that's kind of an area that I got to know very well. But that was my start. And uh, from that point on, I, I moved on. I think Brian Auger was my next gig. Brian was a fantastic Wonderful musician. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and great organist. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was another great experience for me. And that introduced me to Robbie McIntosh, who was the drummer in the band, who was the guy who went on to form the Average White Band. It's amazing how this networking, and certainly I think without adding romance to it, in that period of music in London, it was literally who you knew on the gigs was suddenly a door-opening yeah. opportunity, wasn't it? Absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, it's, it, you kind of look towards people that you know and that you, you kind of trust in the sense and people that you have a stylistic association with you know? mm. and uh, you just go from there you know so uh that was a great thing from that point on i did various other things before the morrissey mullen band you know and of course before we get around to talking about the wonderful legacy you made with morrissey mullen you danced very close to the average white band but apart from touring with them i don't think you ever were officially a full-time member is that right no i was never a member i think i, I toured with them in a band called kokomo we were still going actually. Mm-hmm. We did a we did a, a tour in America, I think, opposite opposite the average white band, who at that time were riding high with pickup GCs and were headlining stadium gigs and stuff. You know, we were just like the third or fourth support or something like that. But it was a great experience, and uh, I was I was watching how they worked and you know how dedicated they were. It was a real object lesson in how to be a band actually, because they really were an ensemble who played for each other. There was no kind of ego trips. A lot of the kind of rock stuff was really about partying and kind of ego trips. But the average white band were really focused and dedicated. And uh, that was a lesson for me right there, you know. It's a professional band as well. Absolutely. It's something I tried to take forward from that in terms of really organizing things and taking it very seriously and really doing the best job that you can do when you're on stage. And was it not on a tour to the States that you first came across Dick Morrissey? Um, no, actually, that was in London. Um, I got a phone call from uh, the t- tenor sax player from the Average White Band, who's an old friend of mine, Malcolm Duncan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said to me, uh, do you fancy coming to New York and recording with Dick Morrissey? And I said, nah, nah, kidding, of course, you know. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, here's Dick's number. And it turned out, it turned out that Dick was living <laughs> half a mile from me in South London. So, you know, I knew who Dick was, but we'd never met. So we met at a pub in Tooting. And uh, we just were just chatting and drinking some Guinness. And Dick said, you know, he'd been playing in this uh, English rock band called If. Mm-hmm. And those rock bands were the horn section like Chicago or mm-hmm. and they had done something like 15 tours of America in three years and Dick said that's it I've had it no more rock bands yeah and, it, and he said that he'd, he'd been to the Village Vanguard in New York and he heard a great jazz saxophonist Phil Woods playing and he said oh that's it that's the way I'm going I have to follow my feelings you know mm-hmm. and I said well actually I feel the same way because I had left this band Kokomo and uh, I just really wanted to go for the sort of things that I enjoyed playing. Dick mentioned 
at that time, the CTI label was just becoming quite popular with people like Stanley Tarantino, George, yeah. George Benson, you know, all that. And I said, yeah. I the Stanley that. Clark part of them as well. Uh, he might have been, actually. Yeah. yeah, I think he was. So anyway, we kind of read each other's mind. And uh, so I got I got back to Mark and Duncan in the States and said, yeah, Dick and I have met. And uh, we're really up for, for doing something. And uh, we got together in my wee, I was crashing in a friend's flat in Wimbledon. And uh, I had no gear at that time. My All my amps had been stolen. I just had a guitar oh. and one of these little, you remember those little pig battery amps? Yeah, 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 yeah. Tiny little they things, were, yeah. Yeah, tiny. That, that was my gear. I plugged <laughs> into that. Dick brought his saxophone. And I had some tunes and he had some tunes. And we, we just played them together. And we found that we could really play things. You know, we, we heard music the same kind of way. So we so anyway, we thought that we could handle this. So I phoned back to Malcolm Duncan. I said, I think we could do this. You know, So they fixed it up. We went to New York and they took us to Atlantic Studios. And, uh, you know, the engineer was Gene Paul, mm-hmm. Les Paul's son. And we met Ahmed Ertegun and Arif Mard and all the kind of Turkish aristocracy who were running Atlantic Records at that time. None of this remote fan. recording, proper studios. Proper studios, yeah. yeah. And uh, the um, the average white band, of course, were huge at that time, so they were very interested in anything that they were involved in. And they all played on their first album, which was called Up. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, Which I had, do have. Right, yeah, that was the very first uh, time we played together. And anyway, it all, because the average white band played on our record, they gave us something to fall back to because we were very nervous, of course, because we'd never played our songs with a band. But they, they were so great, really organised. I think we had a kind of run-through at Malcolm Duncan's studio in his, his uh, house up in uh, Connecticut. And it all clicked beautifully. We thought, great. You know, so we went in for a weekend to Atlantic Studios and we put all the tracks down. And we were very thrilled and excited. It was exactly it was beyond what we could have hoped for. Um, and then uh, uh, Herbie Mann, who was an executive at Atlantic at that time, got involved, and he said, "Listen, you guys, it's great music, but you got to get some vocals on." There. Well, I was just going to ask at some of the humble backing BVs you had on. The- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> we put him off. He said, "Look, man, we're not. We're an instrumental band." He said, "No, no. If you want daytime radio play." He got to have vocals. Yeah. And uh, so he said, leave it to me. <laughs> we sort of said, well, okay. Well, anyway, we got to the studio where he booked the, the singers, and it was only Luther Vandross. Yeah. You know, and Sissy Houston. And, yeah. Sissy Houston. And <laughs> Sissy Houston brought a little daughter along with her. It was actually it was Whitney. As I, <laughs> I think she was about 10 years old. We sat in the corner. And so the other lady. The, the night other before lady going to the studio, you had no idea who these vocalists were going to be. Not a clue. And, uh, you know, we thought, what are we going to get to do? You know, Heavy says, don't worry. So anyway, um, Luther said to me, what's the name of this tune? Uh, the idea was for them to get some kind of vocal hooks. Yeah. And uh, one, one of the tunes was a tune of mine called Footless. The opening track and, on uh, the album, yeah. Yeah, and they said, uh, they said, Footless, what does that mean? You know, I said, well, uh, it's been sort of ill at ease, you know, undecided, unsure. 
and they started playing the thing and then they just came up with these lines <laughs> and we were just like completely blown away yeah. I mean they were they, these were the top kind of session singers in New York at that time and uh because, of course, in 77, when the Up album, that was just as Luth was about to do his first solo on and right. Atlantic Cotillion, wasn't it, with his Luther right. band? Yeah. It came on the back of one of the songs that he wrote for the musical The Wiz. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And that kick-started his solo career. But he was a very successful studio player, as was Sissy. Mm. And, uh, and Myrna Shinwell, who was the other singer who sung with Aretha. Anyway, these people, they sung like angels. Mm. I mean, the whole gospel thing that they had and the really beautiful voices and really soulful and wailing. We kept every note they sung because they, were, they just couldn't put a foot wrong. It was fantastic. And, of course, it just brought a whole new dimension to the music. You know? Well, the energy it must have brought to you and Dick, just oh. suddenly hearing your band, your take a whole different life and dimension in front of your eyes. Just Absolutely. And, we were going nuts. You know, we were letting, it sounds like a hell of a session. It was fantastic. I'll never forget it. Yeah. But they were they were they were drinking like milkshakes and triple Big Macs, <laughs> acting like it was nothing. We were screaming with the joy. You know. Anyway, that was it. <laughs> so, did you spend much time over in the states or New York? A couple of years, actually. In fact, I well, you Dick lived there for I, a couple of years. I did, yeah. And so did Dick. Although he went back sooner uh, than me, he was actually living in Sweden with his family at that time. His wife was Swedish. Mm-hmm. And he was missing the family. He had three kids. And uh, he went back after about a year, I think. I stayed almost two. But uh, we I, we both actually got the gig in Heavy Man's Band, who, um, apart from being an executive at Atlantic, was still touring uh, with his own band. And mm-hmm. he had a lot of hits also, you know, the flute player. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we got into his band, and I met a lot of great New York musicians through Heavy. Um, so that kind of kept me going, made a little money. You know, I just wanted to try and see how the record would go. Mm. And it did get great reviews, actually, when it came out. Um, and was it getting a lot of airplay over in the States on their stations? It, it got airplay, actually, yeah, and it got great reviews and cash box and billboard. Mm-hmm. But then we were a victim of a kind of uh, record company kind of coup because at that time, Atlantic Records was, going, was moving from being a jazz, soul, and rhythm and blues label to being a rock and roll label. They had a new president. They had a whole new board, and Amit uh, Ertigan, who had been the president, was kind of sidelined, and you know all these corporate people came in, and they put us on a subsidiary label called Embryo Records, and uh, Embryo Records was uh, abandoned, mm-hmm. and they wrote it off as a huge tax loss. So this was a blow to us because we had really felt that we had a chance of you know getting a foot in the door in terms of working in America with us. But that was uh, that, that meant we had to come back, basically, you know. So we decided to keep the band going. Dick and I had had a little band in New York playing with some great New York musicians. And when we came back to London, we decided to keep the idea going with some local guys. And that was the start, really, of the Morrissey Mon band. Because, of course, in the very era we're talking about, you were at the very front of the jazz funk era. The, you know, a lot of the straight-ahead guys, the Donald Birds, the Herbies yeah. and so on, were beginning to follow in the same vein that you were playing with Morrissey Mullen. Absolutely. And, and you created a sound. I mean, you created part of a, a legacy of the, of the black music and where soul and jazz do truly cross over. Well, I think we may have been the first because... Uh, I mean, I'm a good friend of Bluey from Incognito. Yes, of course. We're going to talk about that. Incognito was starting out about the same time as us, and they were just a five-piece instrumental band like we were. And uh, he said to me, you know, you guys were a big influence on us, you know. 
But of course, he went on to, to, to you know, add singers and incognito on a huge band mm. with his musicians. But, uh, you know, we started at the same time and then our paths <laughs> diverged.
that was the tune Footloose that we talked about in the interview with backing vocals supplied by Luther Vandross and Sissy Houston. And uh, we've got so much to talk about. In fact, we're going to waste no time and carry on with our interview with Jim. Now, another project that Jim's been involved with over the years is Citrus Sun. Of course, Bluey's project uh, were due to have an album released earlier this year. They decided to delay the album, but we did have a lead-off single, Hard Boiled. And we'll listen to that next on the show this week. Listen online, on DAB and on smart speakers. Straight ahead with London's leading music venue, The 606 Club.
But this again um, is the the genius of, of musicians like you, and, and I, I put you in that same breath, say as as Herbie, where you're not afraid to let jazz move and keep it young. You know, as as you just said, you're yeah. still playing with Citrus Sun, you're still playing with Incognito, you're adapting your styles to what the music sounds like now. You're not trapped back in the you know the, the good old days kind of thing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I never I never liked the idea of being stuck in one place musically. I think. It's always got to be a progressive thing, you know, and uh, I think it's very important. Otherwise, you stagnate. You know? mm. Oh, yeah, you absolutely. Stand, if you stand still, you're going backwards, basically, you know. So and, I've always tried to keep my ears fresh, and Bluey's kind of always—he's a great example of this. You know, mm. he's his mind is full of ideas all the time, very encouraging, and uh, he's been very helpful to me actually. You know. And with just before moving on from Morrissey Marlin, I think you recorded seven albums over a decade, basically, to 77 to 88, I think was the last album that you released, the yeah, Happy Hour album. That's right. And where did your musical life take you after that huge legacy? Well, I tried to, I mean, Dick's health was beginning to deteriorate. You know, he'd been on the road his whole life. And like a lot of musicians, he didn't look after himself, you know. Mm. I mean, he, he wasn't a wild man, but... Uh, you know, you don't get to eat regular when you're on the road, you mm. know. And uh, he never looked after himself. Uh, I used to see him going home after a gig with a, a bag of cold takeaway food mm. and, you know, going to bed on a full stomach and not processing it. Mm. His health really took a hammering, actually, you know. Mm. Plus, he was a beer drinker that he liked to drink. Um, so, I mean, I think it all took its toll. And then he, he called me up one day and said that, yeah, I can't do this anymore, you know. Mm. I tried to keep the band going under another name, but of course, without the Morrissey Mullen name, bookings were getting cancelled right, left and centre. Mm. So I had to do something else. That's when I started getting little bands of my own together. You know, first up, a first quartet with the rhythm section from Morrissey Mullen and then, uh, and then using some of the great young London musicians who were coming up at that time. People like... Uh, Bass player Lawrence Cottle, mm-hmm. drummer Ian Thomas, saxophone players uh, Monnington Lockett, mm-hmm. Dave O'Higgins, yeah. those guys. And we started doing more of a kind of fusion-y kind of like Mike Stern type of music, you know. And uh, that was really the next stage of my life. And then after that, that ran for a while. We did three albums. Then I got an organ trio together because I loved organ trios. And uh, I've still got my organ trios going, as a matter of fact. But uh, and just doing different types. Of I also play in another fusion band led by a saxophone player called Christian Brewer. Mm-hmm. We we play regularly up at the Woodman in Highgate, and uh, that's where I met Ernie McCone, the bass player. Bass player, yeah. And Ernie was the guy that said, "You know, let's get this Marcy Mullen legacy up and running," because he was a huge fan. And of course, the legacy album is the album that's just been released this year, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean. Ernie's really the kind of linchpin of all this because it was his enthusiasm. And also he wrote most of these tunes. And uh, he kind of really got me back into it because I hadn't thought that anybody would really care about that because it was, I mean, it's 20 years yeah, but it's, over. Yeah, but it's a sound. I'd say you created something there. Absolutely. And people remember us. They still come up and talk to me about that. You know, Courtney Fine said to me, I first heard you when I was like, 10 years old or something. <laughs> I mean, that kind of thing, you know, so it made, it made me think that maybe there's still some life in all of this. Well, you, you then, may, I know we were talking just before we started recording the interview and I was saying to you, do you remember I was at that 
guy at the six not long ago just standing with an album would you sign it because i actually had these in my collection and suddenly you were there in front of me it's not a chance you get come along every day of the week and of course on the legacy album uh, taking on the honorous role of of dick is dave lewis yes and what a marvelous job he's done on there so lovely a great, sound. he was a huge fan of dick morrissey actually dave lewis and uh you know he he came in in fact the very last time i saw dick was a, a Morrissey Mullen reunion, which was two months before Dick passed away. And I think he knew that the end was near and he'd asked me to organise it. They said, I probably won't be able to play because this time, by this time, he was in a wheelchair. Mm. And he was riddled with cancer. And mm. it, anyway, you know, we, we organised the gig. It was down in Deal in Kent in a lovely little theatre called the Astor Theatre and we got all the band together. And we did it without a rehearsal. We hadn't played together for years, but we, we got together and Dick was actually on stage in his wheelchair. Mm. And uh, he said, oh, I want to play. You know? So anyway, Dave and Dick were both on stage together and we played a lot, a lot of the old things. The place was packed. Paul McCartney sent along a guy with a video machine and, uh, and you know, played something that Dick had recorded with him. And he was singing along, playing banjo and all this. It was a wonderful night. And uh, people were, there was a standing ovation before we started. It was very moving. And mm. it was also moving because it was quite hard to look at dear old Dick, who had lost so much weight mm. and was really, uh, it had taken on that kind of almost transparent yeah, uh, quality. That. Yeah, yeah. People who are on serious medication, you know. Mm. Anyway, he played his arse off that night. And it was a very, very moving night. And he stayed around normally. He would leave right after the gig, but he stayed around and signed all the albums. And he was there until about one in the morning. And then they took him home because he was living in Deal. Mm. And uh, he was gone two months later. I think it was Dick's way of saying goodbye without making a big deal about it, you know. And uh, I couldn't even make it to the funeral because I was in Germany doing something at that time and mm. couldn't get away. But uh, yeah, yeah, he's never to be forgotten. A wonderful musician. Now, well, the two of you certainly did create one, well, as fittingly called with the latest album, a legacy, and it's, there's no better word to describe what Morrissey Mullen did achieve. And there's so many collaborations and working partnerships that just come to mind. Claire Martin, I've had on the show for a number of times now. Now, you and Claire go back some time and you've recorded Absolutely. great albums yeah. together. Yeah, I played on the very first album. She was 20, I think, and that's about 30 years ago. I remember her and saying the, she came down to see you, oh, I forget which gig it was, but basically she sort of said, could I sing for nothing with you and just kept hounding you, said, <laughs> let's sing with you. She won't do that anymore. So. <laughs> but no, she's got know. management now. She's got management. <laughs> oh, yeah, she knows how to get... I, I mean, you know, good luck to her. You know, she's done incredibly well. Yeah. You know, oh, she loves movie. talking about you and she loves her, the work she's done with you. Well, I mean, you know, we, as I say, we go back and I was able to introduce her to a lot of the singers that have become quite very important to her. people like Shirley Horn, mm-hmm. who she'd never heard and, uh, you know, things like that. It's just, a, it's the same thing that happened to me. You know, people pass on information, musician to musician, and uh, it helps you to get a kind of picture of what's going on. So, yeah, yeah, we still work together mm-hmm. occasionally, you know. Yeah, well, of course, I'm, and I've got a couple of albums with you playing with her that we play on the show regularly as well. And it's just another one of those, say, those unisons. Your name is synonymous. Once you start thinking what where Jim's played, it goes on and on. And we mentioned Citrus Sun and right. Incognito. I don't know, there's an, I think they had an album that was due to come out in the spring, but it's been delayed now, hasn't it? There's been a lead single from it, Hard Boiled, we've been playing. Um, so, yeah. 
when did you? I know we've talked about meeting Bluey. How did all that come about? How many years back do you and he go? Well, right to the beginning of the Morrissey Mullen Band, which is seventy-five. Wow. So you know, I mean, they've you can't forget Bluey's been around that long, don't you? <laughs> well, they've just had the fiftieth anniversary yeah. or something, I think. You know. So Bluey and I are in the what they call the veteran department. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we've been around the block a few times, as they say, but. Uh, the thing I admire about Bluey is, you know, talking about the idea of keeping your mind open. Mm. Being, uh, he's he's a great example of this. I mean, he's full of ideas. He's always listening to things. Uh, you know, he tells me about albums that he's listening to that have influenced him, and uh, he's just constantly on the lookout for new ideas. And you know, he's a very creative guy. You know. I was speaking last week, uh, it's like buses actually with guitarists. We had Rob Luft on with us last week. Great and, and it, yeah, and again, his energy and verve. Now, he's the kind of guy that's going to take your art form into the next 50 years. You can tell oh, his yeah. brain is full of ideas of where he wants to go. And of course, Absolutely. he released that album with Dave O'Higgins that you just spoke of. He yeah. released that album last year with, with Dave. And it's great yeah. when you speak to the youngsters and you can see that this music is going to move forward. It's going to have a future. Oh, yeah. Well, he's he's a monster. You know, in fact, every time I see him, I try and crush his hands and punch because <laughs> you know, he's so good. You know? I mean, the old guys have no chance to like him around. But it's very exciting. You know, I always think that, uh, you know, because I used to be the young guy coming up, you know, now I'm the old guy. When you hear people like Rob Luft, you know that the music's in safe hands, mm, you know. Mm. And that's important for all of us to know that music is going to move forward. Absolutely. Now, we, we established early on that you were self-taught and to this day, you know, are, are not formally as trained as a musician, as ridiculous that sounds to say, but not being a musician, but talking about your style of playing where you pluck, don't you? With my thumb? Yeah. yeah. So can you just explain to us as listeners the difference of styles of playing and why you decided to go that route, why that felt correct for your style, what you were trying to interpret? Well, well it, sounds, it sounds a bit funny, actually, but because there were no guitar teachers around when I was a kid in Glasgow, mm. I mean, I just picked it up and, and just started playing with my thumb because, you know, if I held a pick and, you know, it would fly out of my hands and I'd be looking for it on the floor and I got tired of that, so <laughs> I just carried it with my thumb. But the other thing that I didn't realise and uh, it was that I'm naturally left-handed, but I was playing the guitar right-handed, so this was completely screwing up the wiring in my brain. So, Can I ask I mean, a, a really silly, possibly daft question at that point? Can you be a left-handed guitar player? Well, you see them now. You see people playing the guitar the other way around. Yeah. When I was starting, there were no left-handed players that I knew of. Mm. You never saw people playing guitar left-handed. It was just, I figured the guitar was like a piano. You don't change the strings on a piano if you're mm. left-handed. So, so I was struggling away trying to play it right-handed and failing miserably, losing picks all the time, <laughs> just carrying on with my thumb. And it was a bad habit that didn't get fixed. So I was just kind of stuck uh, doing this. And uh, and it's, it still hasn't been fixed, so I'm kind of stuck with it now. <laughs> but the main thing is it allowed me to try and express some things on the instrument because that was the reason I wanted to play the guitar. I wanted to actually try and express some kind of feelings, you know, mm. because that was my connection with music, was the emotional part of it. And as it that's should what, be, yeah, that's the main yeah, part that of it. drew me in because that's the thing I find most moving. When somebody is really getting into the feel of something, that's the stuff that attracted me and I hope it also attracted the kind of audience that listens to 
to what I do. Mm. But uh, it wasn't just a technical exercise. It was something to do with creating a kind of mood and an emotional appeal. And was and, the first uh, guitar you picked up an acoustic or did you go straight for the arch top? Oh, no, it was a, no, no. I was playing garbage for years. I mean, the first guitar I had, you know, the, the action of the strings was so far off the finger root. Mm. You know, you had to be Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> down chord, you know, before I realised that you could actually lower the action of the strings. Although it was a very primitive guitar. And uh, I, I played primitive guitars for quite a few years through my my you know my childhood really before I, I think I got my first proper guitar when I moved to London and joined Pete Brown's band. He bought me a nice Gibson. Mm-hmm. But before That's that, a name I've heard of. Yeah, you know, Gibsons were the top people uh, guitar makers for years. They're not anymore. I think they're going out of business. But uh, they were for many years. The Gibson Les Paul was the kind of uh, guitar of choice of all the rock players, you know. But the, the Gibson Arch Tops were also beautiful jazz guitars, and I've got mm. one of those now, a Gibson Super 400, which is a classic. You know, I play it every day. Mm-hmm. But uh, Pete bought me my first uh, proper guitar, which was a Gibson SG, and uh, that was my guitar for years. And I'm presuming now you've probably got a number of guitars in your arsenal. And do you, what makes you decide that guitar's right for that gig? Is there a different feel, a different balance? Um, well, there is that, but I don't actually change it. I mean, I've not got a lot of guitars. I think I've got four guitars. Oh, not as uh, many as I thought, actually. No, I'm not a collector. You know, I think mm-hmm. instruments should be played. So the guitars I've got all get played. But my, my road guitar is an aria that I got off the, the, the company gave to me as an endorsement. Mm-hmm. And that's my road guitar, the big blonde Archtop, and I use that when I'm doing gigs. So that's the, um, the bread earn and the day in, day out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the one I use on everything that I do, really, you know, because I, I know I understand how to play that. So it's, you, you develop a kind of relationship with the guitar. I'm sure, you, yeah, as every start, musician does. Yeah, you start to find out how, how it responds and how to get the most out of it. And uh, if I go to another guitar, it takes me a little bit of time to get to that point with that guitar. So I tend to stick to the one road guitar. And again, just asking a slightly nerdy question, possibly. The the, the actual physical stringing, which I'm assuming you obviously do yourself, does the make or the the heaviness, the coarseness of the strings, do you stick to a certain... I mean, I know more about saxes, you know, the reeds and reed cuts and so on. I'm assuming it must be the same for you guys with the strings because that's your contact to the instrument, isn't it? Yeah. Well, when I started out, I was playing real light rock strings, you know, but then when you're playing an arch top, the kind of light strings that work on a solid guitar mm-hmm. don't really sound so good on an arch top. So I, I moved up to much heavier strings because you really get a big fatter sound out of those. And I'm not really into bending strings terribly mm-hmm. much. So I'm really looking for, you know, a, a kind of fat sound like a saxophone, actually. Mm-hmm. And that's what made me, it was having to compete with Dick Morrissey every night. <laughs> His sound was as big as a house. And I just had this little plinky kind of, you know, not very <laughs> nice sound at all. Before I kind of realised I had to raise the bar, and yeah. I started using heavier strings. Strings, I see. So you can complement him better. Absolutely, matching in terms of the weight of the sound. Mm. And uh, so I, I've been, I've been kind of moving up in that direction since then, actually. And you were talking a moment ago, you mentioned the word practice. Through this enforced lockdown, have you been keeping a hand in? Are you playing much? Oh, yeah. yeah. Every day. Yeah. Plus, my wife is a singer. Of course. Uh, so, yeah. 
you know, we've been working on some new music for her mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, preparing other things for gigs if we ever get another gig. <laughs> oh, they will come back, but uh, heaven knows quite when. But uh, <laughs> if I to, live get, long enough, yeah. to, get, to get live, I mean, I know so many musicians now are doing these live streams, which is great, but you still want the energy of those live gigs, don't you? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think the performing to an audience is is very important. It's like football players want to play to a crowd because mm. you respond to you know to their response. And uh I've always loved that idea of performing because when you're playing you can feel when they're getting it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because it's not a question of applause or anything. You can actually feel there's an electricity in the air when people are actually getting what you're trying to express. Well, I've sort of been obviously on this side of it, but I'm sure for you guys up on the on the stand, you know when you're at a special gig. And I'm guessing for you, you know, there's going to be gigs you do that are just a gig. And then there's those gigs that take off and you can feel that spark, that energy. And when Absolutely. you guys are gelling on stage, it comes across to us in the audience so much. And you feed on that. Yeah. That's the kind of thing that pushes you on to find other things to play and other ideas, you know, it's an inspiration, in fact, that you get from the audience, you know. So I miss that. Mm. Although my wife tries to be an audience when I'm practicing. <laughs> she mainly complains. But, well, I would say she's in quite a lucky position having Mr Mullen practicing. But again, <laughs> for a young guitarist listening to this interview, again, let that be a lesson that you still find time at this you know, point in your distinguished career that you still practice every day. You haven't got lazy and just laid it down to one side. You're still on there practicing, working on technique. Another <laughs> particular musicians i think you're a big wes montgomery fan right oh yeah yeah was he one of the first guys that kind of influenced your styling or not really man because i was playing with my thumb for many years before i knew about wes montgomery you know? right but when i when i did find out about wes i was fascinated because he could do much more with his thumb than i can with mine and it, t- <laughs> it turned out that wes had a double jointed thumb oh, that's right i remember being told could- that he can move it forward and back, yeah. which meant he could play up and down strokes like a pick player. You know, mm. he can play up and down. I could only play down strokes because, unfortunately, my thumb is only single jointed. <laughs> so How very I, dare you? I mean, I, th- I, I was thinking I'd maybe get a little ball socket put in there. See if I, could do it <laughs> I thought maybe it's too late. It's a bit extreme, possibly. Things. Yeah, possibly. But um, his style of playing, I absolutely adore. And when we're talking about when you were younger, um, I mean, the benefit for kids now is, of course, if they want to research, they can just go online. But for you, it would have been cassettes and records and albums and physically sitting and listening, wasn't it? There's no dipping in and out online for a five-minute tutorial. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there was a a specialist record shop in Glasgow run by an old guy, and he used to get two copies of Blue Note records. This nah. was my, my introduction to Blue Note. Mm. And there was another, there was a rich kid in Glasgow who used to get one of those copies of everything. And I would go in and get the odds. I, I couldn't get everything, but I got Herbie Hancock albums, you know, the early ones like mm. uh, Watermelon Man, mm-hmm. and, uh, Maiden Voyage, and, you know, Jazz Messengers albums and Wayne Shorter. I mean, it was just fantastic for me to hear this music because it was the state of the art mm. this would be the early 60s and uh oh, those van gelder recordings to this day are just astounding oh, absolutely. Aren't they? as a matter of fact i've got a little story because uh i was a journalist at this time and i wrote a letter to rudy van gelder because i was fascinated with the sound he got in those things because it was only two track stereo mm. but when you're listening to those things now 
you know, it's like a concert sound. It's yeah. a huge, yeah. you know. I mean, he was a real professional. Apparently he wore white gloves and he used those big old mics that used to see the radio announcers with him. He wouldn't let anyone touch a mic. I knew he was a massive mics man. I knew that because his, his studio setup was the absolute it was where it all was for his recordings from what reading I've made about it where he positioned his mics and placed them and yeah, yeah. how he but isolated his, them and it was his ears though you know mm. the way that he heard music and he could have a band playing all at once there was no kind of overdubs in those mm. days it was all live to tape and uh, it sounded like a concert you know you're in a concert hall or something but it was in a little studio and uh, you know so I wrote to him and I said dear Mr Van Gelder um I'd love, you know, I don't know anything about you. I'm a big fan of your music. I've, I've got so many albums that you've recorded. And I would like to ask you to give me some information so I can write a, a kind of a, an article about you. You know, I had access to a, a couple of jazz magazines at that time. And uh, he wrote me back and he said, uh, dear sir, thank you for your inquiry, but I have to tell you, I'm still in this business. And if I'm seen to be favouring one artist over another, I may not get another. <laughs> I can believe it. I thought this guy was an exalted position, an iconic, but he refused to cooperate. No. See, so like, music industry, always fragile. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and while I just be, I'm well aware of how much of your time I've taken, for that I apologise, but it's been fascinating talking to you. But while I've got one of, you know, the best jazz guitarists I've seen play, one of the other guitarists I love listening to is Kenny Burrell. And oh, yeah. Now, again, does his style correlate to you or to what? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I met Kenny Burrell once in Ronnie Scott's club. He was an absolute gentleman, and I said to him, "What I love about your playing, man, is how soulfully you play bebop." You know, he managed to find all the great sweet notes, and uh, and he said, "Well, thank you so much." You know, it was like nobody had ever told him anything like this. I mean, he must have had it, but you know, I just confess, you know, it's the sort of thing you do when you're young and you meet a hero. You kind of blabber on all this stuff and I just said you know I love how soulfully you play jazz and that's exactly you know because still because I host some soul shows and when I say to people about jazz you still get that little bit of reticence and I say okay look if you're wondering how cool jazz can be go and listen to Chitlin's Goncarni absolutely because it's the coolest of any time you want to exemplify (laughs) what great jazz guitar and great jazz is that Midnight Blue album is just divine isn't it the thing about Chitlin's Goncarni is I mean it's a great tune but it's an absolutely disgusting meal. <laughs> Don't ever try it at home. <laughs> but the tune's great. <laughs> I'll stick to the music then. Yeah, good idea. So, um, I just can't wait to see you live again, Jim. It's, you know, we've been robbed of three months of seeing the great Jim Mullen perform. So here's hoping that sometime soon I'll be sitting down in my little seat at the back of the six, looking through the hatch, watching you. And I was actually down there one night doing just that as my little solo spot that I sit at when in walked Nigel Price just to sit and watch you play. All right. Yeah, yeah. Nigel and I go back also, yeah. Yeah, again, he's another one. He's another player. one. Yeah, yeah, and, he's another one. And when you were talking of yes. you and Dick, I, I was thinking of Nigel and Vaz because the amount of tours yeah. they do and the dates. It, this just jazz thing, it, once it's in your blood, man, you just <laughs> it yeah. doesn't go anywhere, does it? You're going to die poor. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, but rich with art. Not that that helps pay the bills. (laughs) 
So, Jim, many thanks. I'm so glad we finally got you on the show. It means the world to me. So thank you very much. And hopefully we can get in touch again once you're back on the stage and talk about gigs that you've got coming yeah. up. Remember those things? When yes, you're on stage in front of people? <laughs> yes, dearly. <Deadly. laughs> keep practising. Keep entertaining Zoe. Uh, Tape <laughs> Make sure she's your audience. All right. Thanks, Lovely, Jim. Many thanks indeed for your time. All of us. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Some folks were meant to live in clover But they are such a chosen few Cause clover being green Is something I've never seen Cause I was born to be blue If there's a yellow moon above me They say there are moonbeams I should view But moonbeams being gold Is something I can't behold Cause I was born to be met you my world was bright and sunny when you left the curtain fell I'd like to laugh but nothing strikes me funny now my world is a fading pastel I'm luckier than some folk I've known the thrill of loving you And that alone is more Than I was created for Cause I was born to be I'm luckier 
Jim, along with Claire Mullen, uh, Claire, Claire Martin, rather, off of the Bumping album, which was a tribute to the music of Wes Montgomery. We've got something from Wes before we finish the show as well. And uh, I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I enjoyed running it with uh, Jim. It's lovely. It's been a dream come true. I've wanted Jim on the show for so many years. So, Jim, many thanks indeed for your time. We're going to carry on now with a couple of musicians that uh, we mentioned on the interview. Dave O'Higgins, the sax man, of course, and guitarist Rob Luft, who he had as a guest on the show last week. They recorded an album a couple of years ago now called Plays Trainer Monk, and the track we're going to play next is their take of Monk's Round Midnights. Straight Ahead with David Lewis. Thank you. 
During the interview, you will have heard Jim talk about his love affair with Rudy Van Gelder and the Blue Note label, and certainly during that halcyon period of the uh, late 50s and early 60s, they were releasing some wonderful, wonderful albums. And Jim mentioned that he remembered going to that record shop in Glasgow and buying a copy of Herbie Hancock's Maiden Voyage.
with Herbie on Maiden Voyage was the stellar Blue Note studio lineup of Ron Carter on bass. Anthony Williams was on the drums, George Coleman tenor, and Freddie Hubbard was on the trumpet. Next, we're going to the double jointed thumb of Wes Montgomery, a track that you'll find on his 1963 album Boss Guitar, Besame Mucho. <laughs> Thank you. 
completing the trio, along with Wes Montgomery, were Mel Ryan on the organ and the late Jimmy Cobb was on the drums. Many thanks indeed for your company this week. And of course, thank you to Jim Mullen. I've uh, say waited so long to get him on the show and it really didn't disappoint. Uh, our guest next week on our interview series will be Callum Al, talking about his brand new album, amongst other things, called Songs and Stories, which features Claire Martin as the guest vocalist on the album. And it's a lovely album that's going to be available as from the 26th of June. So, to finish up the show this week, we are going to be playing that track that is best listened to and not tasted from Kenny Burrell, 1963. The album was Midnight Blue, and we are going to take a listen and play out indeed on Chitlin's Con Carney. Thank you. 